0: You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 3 of a fanfiction story titled A Late Presentation by today's guest fanfiction author, Catherine Wildling. When Draco returned from the bathroom, his nest smelled entirely different. It wasn't a bad sort of different, or even a good sort of different, but it was a different, that he felt deep in his bones and couldn't ignore. It smelled different in a way that was fundamental to the very cells that formed his muscles and skin, and he didn't know how to approach it at first. It was his nest, after all. He should be able to approach his own nest— He should be able to bury himself in his own nest and sleep without any qualms. But his nest smelt foreign, and he had no one to blame but himself. Potter was all over his nest. Well, his scent was, anyway. Draco wasn't sure where he'd gone. He'd been sitting near the food when Draco excused himself. Now he took another drink of the Perrier and then climbed back into the nest and drew the sheet back over his head. The hayfield smell was stronger. Definitely a hayfield. Draco had been on Halloween rides when he was still a little boy, long before Hogwarts, back when his father wasn't in Azkaban and his mother wasn't. Hayfields and brooms, the stout, waxed scent of the handle and the wilder, woodsier scent of the twigs. Oh, and apples. Apples were very good, tart, sweet, and crisp. He wished he had an apple. Or the Perrier. That would be good. But he didn't feel like searching for the bottle, and it was so hot, and he flung the duvets and blankets back against the raised edges of his nest and wrapped the light sheet around himself and turned onto his stomach, drawing his legs underneath himself as another cramp hit. This one was different. It felt deeper and sharper, and he keened as it peaked and then began to ebb. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world. Greetings from the wild era desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Today's guest fanfiction writer is Southern Wildling. They have been a member of AO3 since 2019, and they have posted 14 fanfictions there for Game of Thrones, Good Omens, and Harry Potter. Southern Wildling is Gen X parent to three grown children. They have a wide variety of past professions over the years, including OSHA janitorial, adult caretaker, billing and accounting for a Fortune 1000 company. They also know how to sew a quilt, cane a chair, and make the five French mother sauces, which is incredibly impressive to me personally, as I am hopelessly useless in the kitchen and primarily survive on haphazardly crafted peasant foods. So that is impressive to me. These days, Southern Wildling is an emotional support human to an anxious elderly chihuahua. Southern Wildling, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Thank you. I'm very well today. How are you?
0: Oh, excellent. It's been a great day. We're going to talk fan fiction today, and I'm so excited to do that with you. I always start at the beginning because I think that the discovery of fan fiction to me is such an important, special time for everybody. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about your earliest fandom memories.
1: So when I was a kid, I had started reading very, very like I don't remember a time when I could not read. I went into kindergarten already knowing how to read. And because I grew up in a very rural area, there wasn't a whole lot to do. We didn't have a television at one point, and then when we did have a television, it only received one channel, and you had to get the bunny ears, you know, exactly the right way, because it's the 80s. Um, We didn't have cable or anything. So I spent a lot of time reading, and I read everything. I wound up reading things that I oughtn't to have read. I read things that were not age-appropriate, but I spent a lot of time reading things like the Little House books, and I read The Secret Garden, and I read The Hobbit, and the summer that I was 10, I was so obsessed with The Hobbit, because I was reading it, and I'd also watched the cartoon.
0: Yes, I love that I cartoon. So, <laughs>
1: yes. so so my brain was envisioning the cartoon characters, you know, so I'm seeing, like, the cartoon elves, not, like, the live-action movie that came out several years ago. But what I would do is I would take these ideas that I would have about, you know, Laura from the Little House books, or, you know, about Mary in the Secret Garden, or, you know, later in, with The Hobbit. And I would make up these stories in my head, and I would play act them out, like playing pretend. I came up with all these different, basically, self-insert storyline ideas. But I didn't understand that that's what I was doing at the time. But I came up with one idea for a story where my little avatar was going to join up with Bilbo, and we were going to go and fight those spiders, because those were horrifying. And I got very excited about this idea, and I decided I'm going to write this down. This one's really, really good. And so I wrote it down. I filled up, like, two or three notebook pages, you know, front and back. I was so proud of myself. And I took it to my mother. and I was like, here, look, the story I wrote. And she read it, and she was like, okay, well, this is, this is a really good story, but it's The Hobbit. And I said, well, but it's not The Hobbit. It's about me and The Hobbit. It's about me and Bilbo. So she had to sit me down and explain plagiarism. <laughs> and, and, <I> was, <laughs> and, and honestly, at the time... I don't think that I actually got it because, you know, my thought process on it was, obviously I'm not plagiarizing this. Nobody would ever think that I wrote The Hobbit. I didn't write The Hobbit. I wrote this story that's about The Hobbit. So that's obviously not plagiarism. <laughs> so the funny thing about it is, like, I kind of still fall in line with those sort of thoughts even to this day. Is like, nobody would think that I wrote Game of Thrones or that I wrote Harry Potter just writing my own little story that takes place within the confines of that universe.
0: So it sounds like your first discovery of fan fiction was you writing your first fan fiction, and you probably didn't even know what it was, right? It was just a self insert. I had no idea that fan fiction was even a thing. I basically thought that I invented it. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I love about that story, though? I What's love up? that story because. I was very much like you as a child. I wanted way more out of my life than I had. Uh I'm very much like you. I grew up with most of the same books that you did. I read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as a young child. And to me, the adventures and the stories in those books were so endlessly fascinating to me. And I was always imagining stories in my head that I never wrote down. So you were miles ahead of me there. I never wrote them down, but I was always having an adventure in my head as a self-insert into these universes. So yeah. I was a Starfleet captain at one point. I was also, you know, from Deep Space Nine, Constable Odo. I was his deputy at one point. Oh, nice. That was fun. <laughs> I was also a ranger in The Hobbit, and I would join Thor and Oakenshield. And, and he was so grateful for my oh, services her. that he would <laughs> gift me things, you know. And it was just so gratifying. And so I'm so pleased to meet someone else that had that experience growing up, because when I got to be an adult, I thought, well, that's silly. Like, why would you do all of those things? But I still find myself doing it. You know, I'm not a fan fiction writer myself, but I still do it. And it provides endless hours of entertainment for me. And (laughs) there's always a story going off in my head about that. So I think that that's wonderful. And I love that. And I encourage it. And I'm so happy to meet someone else who had that same experience growing up. Yeah, in the 80s and 90s, you know, we didn't really have a lot of access to fan fiction.
1: No, not at all. Like, I didn't even like, know of it really existing as a thing itself until like 95, 96. And that was only because a friend of mine had gone to Nashville to stay with their other parent. And when she came back, she had a zine. And I had no idea what a zine was, you know. So I was like, "What is this?" And you know, and I'm looking at it, and and it was it was either Next Generation or Deep Space Nine from Star Trek. I can't remember which. I want to say it was Deep Space Nine, but I'm not positive, you know. And but I'm looking at it. And I'm like, "This is so cool," you know? <laughs> and, and, you know. And she's like, "Oh, it's a zine." And I'm like, "Yes, it's a zine." <laughs> and uh, so that that was really interesting because the only way in those days to get fan fiction, uh, people were writing it. People were sharing it with each other, but unless you got it like on a mailing list, even finding the mailing list to get on, you weren't going to be able to really access it the way that we can access fanfiction so easily today.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that story. Now, was that your first exposure to fanfiction that wasn't your own? Yes. Oh my goodness. That is so cool that your first exposure was a fanzine because you're right. Before the advent of the internet where we just started posting shit all over the place, the only way that you could get it was to be on the mailing list and to be receiving these fanzines or a lot of people would just buy them at the conventions. But for so many people, that was the first exposure to something like that. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but were they calling it fanfiction in that zine? I
1: don't remember. I just remember that there were Star Trek stories in it. (laughs) That's really, uh, it's been so long ago.
0: Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I just wonder sometimes, like, was the word fan fiction being thrown around in these zines a lot to where everybody kind of had that word at their disposal to call it that? Or were most people just thinking, oh, these are just Star Trek stories or whatever story, you know? So I think that that's just so fascinating. Now, I'm curious to know what inspired you to become a writer. Was it your experience as a younger child writing your own pieces of fan fiction that did that? Was it seeing these Star Trek stories in the zine? Or was it something else that inspired you to write more?
1: Honestly, I always wanted to write because I read so much as a child. And just having that way of escaping whatever you know, my personal circumstances were at that time. You know, I could go off and have these adventures. I could go off and read, you know, and then I'm no longer stuck in the southeastern United States. I'm off in England with Mary Lennox, you know, <laughs> or you know, I'm braving the, the frontier with, you know, Laura and Mary and pulling leeches off our feet. It was, it was, you know, I could go off and do all these things that I didn't have access to be able to do where I live. And just the idea that if these people who wrote these books... And now I can read these books and I can imagine experiencing these things. Then wouldn't it be so cool if I could write stories that then other people could get that same kind of experience of being able to not escape exactly, but they could escape off into, you know, a fantasy land where things are not like they are here.
0: It sounds like that same sort of experience that you had of not necessarily running away, right? From the life that we have here right. in real life. But you can get a break from it. Yes, take a break from it or experience something else. There's a quote out there. Well, there's many quotes, but the one that I like the most, I think, is I have lived a thousand lives oh, yeah. because I read. Definitely. And I think that that is absolutely true. I feel like reading whether it's fan fiction or published literature or what have you, I feel like reading gives me the ability to have all of these interesting experiences that make me a more well-rounded person than I would be if I didn't have that opportunity to read and to consume stories that aren't mine.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because I've read books written by 19th century English authors. I've read books written by 19th or 20th century Chinese writers, and they have had vastly different experiences in their lives. And the things that they write about are vastly different. But because I can sit down and read these books, I can get a sense of what they experienced and also the, a sense of like what they wanted to highlight about the world as they experienced it.
0: Yes, it gives us that opportunity for a different perspective other than our own. And that's just vastly incredible. That kind of flows actually into the next question that I have because while I appreciate all literature for what it is, I am especially fascinated by fan fiction (laughs) because I think that fan fiction is especially interesting and unique and it holds a special place, I think, in society. And so I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on why fan fiction is important? Why is it important? What are the things that you love the most about it? I want to hear all of your thoughts on that.
1: You know, I love fan fiction because it gives writers a framework. Props to Tolkien for, you know, the world building that he did, but not everyone has the time or the energy or the ability to come up with a fully fleshed universe that way and come up with a plot line to fit into that. But what fan fiction does is it gives writers a framework already, like, laid out. You have characters that are already there, and then you can take those characters and tell a story that you want told, You can tell the story that that you think other people need to hear or that, you know, other people would enjoy hearing. Or to get out your point of view on whatever issue that you want to speak about. It gives you the ability to put something into a framework that's comfortable for you. If you like Harry Potter, then you can take those Harry Potter characters, keep them in character, but tell a story that's not Harry Potter.
0: I love what you just said there. That you can take the story that you want to tell, that you feel is important, and that you feel needs to be heard and told, but the fan fiction is what allows you to tell that story in a way that's comfortable to you. Yes, because you know those characters, you know the universe. I absolutely love that because I think that sometimes we do have these great big stories or concepts that we want to get across or express or what have you. And sometimes you're right, like it can be so difficult to do that in a meaningful way. And these vast universes that already exist are perfect for us to be able to use them as a framework to tell the stories that we need to tell, right? And I think that not only is it allowing that story to come out in a way that's comfortable for the writer.
1: But also for the reader.
0: Yes, yes. I was just about to say, because as a reader, I find that I can relate much better to the message or the theme of the story or what, what have you If I already understand the characters and the rules of the universe, right? I already have that framework, and now I can sink into that comfortable universe and just enjoy or process the story from that framework. It's just wonderful. It's just fucking awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I read fandom blind sometimes, so it's it's interesting for me when I'm reading a fandom that that I'm not familiar with because I can go into it completely, well, blind, as I said. But even then, the stories that are being told, completely relatable, and the good ones, you know, you can still get a sense of who these characters are, but it is much easier to do that if I'm reading in a fandom that I'm already familiar with. It's much easier to read, you know, a a fanfiction set in Game of Thrones, or set in Harry Potter, or set in Supernatural. You know, I actually watched Teen Wolf simply because I had read so much Teen Wolf fanfiction. I watched Yuri on Ice after reading... I don't even know how many Yuri on Ice fan fictions, but I never would have been exposed to them, to Teen Wolf or to Yuri on Ice or to My Hero Academia. I never would have been exposed to any of them had I not read the fan fiction first.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of us have had that experience where we read a a story, a fan fiction story, completely fandom blind, Mm -hmm. and the story is so compelling that we just have to get into the fandom after that and consume the original content just... You know, <laughs> to have that exposure under our belt. So yeah,
1: I was very surprised when I watched Fury on Ice because I was expecting something completely different.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've seen so many of those stories, but I myself have never. You know, I've never read them, and I've never had exposure to the original canon content, so I don't know anything about them. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, I imagine that it it's interesting and different. Yeah. Now I am curious that you know, speaking of different fandoms and things like that, Harry Potter. Harry Potter is an interesting fandom to me. And I've mentioned this, I think, a couple of times on the show already, but I was an adult when I finally decided that it was okay for me to read Harry Potter. But I am an older millennial. So it seems like one of those things that my millennial compatriots grew up with reading, you know, right, most of my colleagues were pretty young when they started reading that. You are Gen X, so you did not grow up with Harry Potter. So I'm curious to know how you got introduced to Harry Potter fandom and what was that like for you? Because I'm assuming you were probably grown when you first encountered that.
1: I was. um, The first book of Harry Potter was actually published the same year that my eldest daughter was born. And I heard about it on the news. I remember there there was all this big kerfluffle about, you know, it's. Well, at least here, anyway. Oh, they're going to introduce Satanism to the kids. Ban it from the schools and everything. Just, good Lord. But it just it didn't affect me. You know, I was just like, oh, whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> these people are being ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Children's stories, you know. But at the same time, I wasn't enticed to read them either. You know, it was just sort of like, uh. And then, you know, years went by and more books got published. And, you know, they started talking about movie deals. And still, I'm just sort of like, well, whatever. You know, it's overhyped you know, I'll stick with my tried and true classics, because I can be pretentious like that, but then my daughter, she wanted the books for Christmas, and I was fine with that, she was, it was like 2005, I want to say, so she was about eight or nine, maybe 2006, I'm not positive, so, yeah, I got the books, but at the same time, like, I made a point to read the books that my kids were reading, you know, not because I was, like, searching for anything that was, like, bad, or, you know, like, oh, this has got Satanism in it. But more just, (laughs) but more because I like discussing the books with my kids. You know, it something that was important to me. It was no big deal if they read The Secret Garden, because I'd read that a million times, but obviously had never read the Harry Potter books. So, you know, I read very quickly, so I read them, zip through the ones that were available at the time very quickly, and, you know, she got them for Christmas, and she was very happy to get them. And at the time, I remember being impressed with the way that when you go, I want to say there were only five books out at, the, at that point. So I remember being very impressed with the way that the writing changed each book, you know, that sort of a grow with you experience. I was like, that that was really clever of her <laughs> to write it that way, where, you know, as the books go on, they get longer, the language tightens up and becomes, you know, more more of a challenge for a younger reader to consume, you know, and the, the, the themes get darker, obviously. And the things that the characters are going through are relatable to people of that age group. I, I just thought that was you a know, really, really clever way to go about you know, doing a, a YA series. But I still wasn't really like, oh yeah, Harry Potter, and, you know, like gung-ho, until the next to last book came out. And I'm going completely blank on the title of the next to last book.
0: I cannot remember either, to be honest with you. It's okay. <laughs>
1: And at that point, I was just like, this is phenomenal. You know, I I was like, you know, I just, I was so excited about it. And I was like, okay, so when the the last book came out, I was, you know, one of those people that was there, you know, for the midnight borders parties, waiting with bated breath for them to open the door and deliver (laughs) to us that last book, you know, and I read it in like a day and just, oh, this is wonderful. You know, I was just very, very interested in the whole phenomena. That came through with the books and the movies and Pottermore and you know, the Pottermore website, and then of course everything that happened with J.K. Rowling later. <laughs>
0: <was> more, well. <laughs> yes, well, yes, <laughs> yes, very unfortunate. Absolutely, it's caused a lot of uh, kerfuffle, I think, in the Harry Potter fandom.
1: It really has. But you know what I think is funny about it? It's like <laughs> the Harry Potter fans, as far as I can tell, have just sort of been like, you know what. It got too big, it got out of your grasp, and it's ours now. And we're gonna do whatever we want.
0: (laughs) Yes, that has been the attitude of most of the people that I've talked to, where they just say, you know, thanks for your service, but we'll be taking this story over now. And uh, it's ours. Go back to (laughs) whatever you were doing before. I love that though about the fandom community is uh, we're grateful for the original content, but it's ours now. And uh, we will take it and we will run with it and we will do whatever we need to do. A lot of people out there, some of the writers that we both are aware of um, have done complete rewrites mm-hmm. of some of these Harry Potter stories, you know, yes. to kind of uh, fit our narrative a little bit better the way we would like to see it. So I, I just think that that's incredibly amazing. I agree with you on those last two books. I don't know if you got this sense, but when I was reading those last two books, I got the sense that they were darker than the others that preceded them. Oh,
1: definitely. Definitely. I mean, they're dealing with some really heavy themes, especially when you consider that it's a storyline that's written for teenagers, you know, for young teens through to upper teenage, you know, kids that they're reading these stories. You don't normally think about teenagers reading stories about Themes like war,
0: life and death situations, life and and
1: death situations, and you know the systemic racism that's portrayed with the Death Eaters and the blood purity culture that they you know had going. These aren't themes that you think of when you think, oh, this is you know YA literature. But it was depicted so well. I'm not sure that the characters always reacted to some of the darker things that were happening was always particularly realistic. I don't think that was portrayed particularly realistically as far as like the amount of trauma that these characters went through. But at the same time, in order to keep it from getting, you know, incredibly dark, it did perhaps need to walk that line of not showing it quite as realistically as it could have been done otherwise.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. I I do think that unfortunately, they did not address the psychological and emotional trauma that a lot of these teen characters were going through at the time. So, you know, thank God for fan fiction. Exactly. (laughs) thank God for the writers that recognized that dearth, right, for Mm -hmm. us, and were able to provide us with some remarkable stories and series that address those gaps.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, like Hermione being tortured by Bellatrix... And afterwards in the books, you know, yeah, I mean, she it's referenced a bit, but at the same time, it's like, that would be horribly, horribly traumatic to experience. Yeah, I've read several fan fictions where that is addressed, and, you know, it's not exactly like a Hermione goes to therapy type fic, but, but at least it's acknowledged.
0: Right, exactly. That acknowledgement, I think, is, is very important, especially since most of us who grew up reading Harry Potter as children... We probably didn't recognize that dearth when we were reading the stories for the first time as children and teenagers, but we're all adults now. Right. And we are desperate for the realism and the aftermath (laughs) of all of the trauma that happened, you know? Yeah, because like
1: in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or like Philosopher's Stone, the fact that Harry was being neglected and abused by the Dursleys is just completely glossed over. Like, it's there. It is. right there, and nobody (laughs) acknowledges it. It's just like, and I don't know, it's like, you know, reading that as an adult, did nobody think to call whatever the British equivalent of CPS is? He's not wearing clothes that fit him. He looks (laughs) underfed, you know? I mean, if Aunt Petunia's whacking him with a skillet, good lord, you know, (laughs) thank goodness he was magical and could heal from that. You'd think one of his teachers would have been like, uh, is
0: everything okay at home? You know, like, yes, I was just about to say that, you know, he went to traditional school before mm-hmm. the age of 11. Did none of his teachers ever say, you know, perhaps child services should be called in this instance because something <laughs> exactly. is very wrong here. <laughs> this, this, isn't, this isn't normal. <laughs> yes, yes, yo, no. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that, like I said, a lot of the people in our age group now who... You know, we were children when we first, you know, most of us were children, I think, when we first read Harry Potter. And now as adults, we're just now we need more. We need more realism and we Mm -hmm. need those issues to be addressed here. So I always love to explore the Harry Potter fan fiction because there's just so much to explore there. They keep coming out all these years later. I'm always so pleased by that, that it's been quite some time since the original content ended. That series ended a long time ago. And yeah. here you still have all of these writers who keep churning out these amazing stories. And, and I love that. Now, did you start writing Harry Potter fan fiction after reading books six and seven? Or did you wait some time after you had completed the entire series before you started dipping your toes into fan fiction writing?
1: Much later. It was much, much later. I, you know, I, I finished you know, reading and watching Harry Potter in the mid 2000s as books six and seven came out and as the movies came out, you know, I, I would revisit them, obviously, but I didn't really get into writing Harry Potter fan fiction until just a, a couple of years ago. It wasn't a fandom that I thought that I would be writing in, but I had gotten a terrible case of writer's block because I was writing for Game of Thrones, and after the final season, I was very disappointed, in the, in the final season of Game of Thrones, as, as I know a lot of people were,
0: <laughs> yes, rightfully so. And I just
1: could not bring myself to write anymore in that fandom at that time. It, I was just so so frustrated with everything that had happened, and so I would go on for I don't even know it had been months where I hadn't really written anything, or if I if I had written, I was like, no, this is this is crap, and deleted it. But I I just just like you know what I need to write like. I feel like it's, a, it's almost like an itch, like I have to write something. And so, I was, okay, well, what's comfortable? Well, Harry Potter's comfortable. I know the characters, I know the Harry Potter universe, I know what happens in Harry Potter, and I've read enough Harry Potter fan fiction, I know what's going on here. So, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to force myself to write something. Anything. Just write something and that's what happened. I wound up writing an Omegaverse Harry Potter fan fiction that was meant to stop my negative self-talk about my writing, because no pressure. I don't have to worry about keeping everything exactly as it was supposed to be in the Game of Thrones universe. Because it's Omegaverse, I can change things as I want to, you know, so I didn't have to worry about making sure everything was completely accurate. And I sat down and I wrote, and that's where our late presentation came from.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. That Not only was it a wonderful story and so entertaining, and I loved every minute of reading it, but to know that it was also meant to be like an exercise for you to get kind of out of your head a little bit with your own writing and to just kind of get something out on paper. Because, you know, that itch you describe, I have heard so many other writers describe that, where It's a need, like Mm -hmm. a physical need to write something down on paper and get those thoughts out. So I'm glad that you were able to do that here with Late Presentation and with Harry Potter as well. This turned out spectacularly. thank you. I am curious about what your thoughts are on the dreary pairing. For those who are not Harry Potter fandom people, dreary is the word for the Harry and Draco Malfoy pairing. And I will admit right now (laughs) that it's not a pairing that I have spent a lot of time in. I have lots of others, but that one has always been a bit of an enigma to me. But a lot of people love it. And I'm so curious to know what it is about that pairing that people find compelling, because I'm sure that that pairing does have very interesting dynamics. So I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your thoughts and opinions on the compelling nature of the Dreary pairing for us.
1: You know, they've got such great potential for an enemies-to-friends-to-lovers trope, because they've got so much history, you know, across the seven books of them fighting with each other. But even when they're fighting with each other, it's like, it's very easy to ship them, because they're always so very aware of each other. In the books, it's because they've got this rivalry going on, sort of, and Draco coming from his background and Harry coming from a completely different background. You know, there's always friction. There's always tension there, you know, and they're always sniping at each other. But it makes it very easy to envision a storyline where they weren't enemies or where they were able to overcome that history and develop something more romantic.
0: Oh, that makes so much sense.
1: Yeah, I think of all the Harry Potter slash other character pairings. I like reading other pairings with Harry Potter, but the Dreary pairing works for me on so many levels that I probably will always come back to it as my number one favorite pairing there.
0: Oh, I love that. And the fact that you're pointing out here that Harry and Draco are always orbiting yeah. each other, even in canon, I had never thought about it that way, but you're right. They're always orbiting each other.
1: Yeah, Harry is always thinking that Draco's up to something. You know, he spends the entirety of, I want to say, Half-Blood Prince basically stalking Draco. <laughs> it's
0: like... That is true, because he thought Draco was up to something and yeah. spent an exorbitant but... amount of time following him around.
1: <laughs> yeah, and just obsessing over it. And I mean, granted, you know, he was right. Draco was up to something. But, but still, you know, Harry noticed because Harry was always paying attention. He's always paying attention to Draco.
0: Oh, yes, 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 yes. And I can also see how many people could read into Draco's, you know, he's always, like you said, he's sniping at Harry and always trying to put on this front of, I'm better and I, I don't care about him and blah 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 mm-hmm. but you could absolutely read into that. Oh, no, think, definitely. You know, yeah, between I mean, the it's, lines. It's, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit me thinks he does protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to make the coffee squirt out my nose. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. (laughs) Now, you had both characters present in a late presentation. Yes. It's really just a story between Harry and Draco. And I was wondering, is there a character that you like writing the most for over one or the other? And which one would it be?
1: In that particular story, I found it easier to write Draco. Okay. I've written another Harry Potter fanfic that's completely unrelated to uh, a late presentation. It's not mega verse. And in that one, I, it was much easier for me to write Harry's parts. But in a late presentation, I'm not really sure what it was. I guess I was having a difficult time trying to figure out exactly what Harry's character would be like in an Omegaverse setting. It was easier for me to picture him in a Harry Potter sort of slight AU. But in a late presentation, Draco's character was was a lot easier for me to figure out what his motivations were and what his thought process would be like.
0: And so it sounds like writing Harry's point of view was the one that was the most challenging for this project.
1: Oh, definitely. Although you could say that Creature was the most difficult since I didn't have him say a word, even though he does pop in a couple
0: of times. (laughs) He does, out of necessity. He pops in a few times here and there, but (laughs) yeah, he didn't really have any lines.
1: (laughs) I'll have to make him talk in the the sequel.
0: (laughs) Yes, because there is a sequel. I'm glad you brought that up and uh, we'll be addressing that in a bit here. Mm, Oh, definitely. Now, for those who have never read A Late Presentation, could you describe that story for those of us who haven't read it? And also, besides this being a project to help you kind of move your writing forward, if you could tell us if there was anything else besides that that inspired you to write this particular piece?
1: Didn't really have any other inspiration besides trying to break out of my writer's block. I'd been reading a lot of Omegaverse stories at the time, and I thought that it was really a fun AU to play in. There's so many different variations, and there's so many different aspects that, that different writers put into their Omegaverse stories. You don't like this particular trope? Leave it out. You like this one? Put it in. You know, it, it just lent a lot of flexibility to the universe. So I figured you know, it would be a fun exercise.
0: If you had to describe briefly what a late presentation is about, how would you describe that?
1: So a late presentation at its core is basically an Omegaverse character who doesn't think they're an Omega presents as an Omega unexpectedly, and goes through their first heat. So in the uh, Omega verse that I've built in this story, basically you want to have an Alpha partner with you for your first heat, or there'll be vague medical issues involved. <laughs> it's not exactly like a fuck-or-die trope, but it's it's adjacent <laughs> to that. And so Harry gets called upon to assist Draco with his first heat at Hogwarts in the year following the battle at Hogwarts.
0: One of the things that I love about the ABO trope, personally, because I I read a lot of stories (laughs) in that trope and I love it, but one of the things that I love about the trope is it does give us the opportunity to see characters that we're familiar with who may be able to show us different sides of them because of the ABO dynamics involved, right? So in this story, obviously Draco was not anticipating (laughs) presenting late in life as an Omega. That's not something that was in his purview. And him being such a proud character, he comes from an old family, he has a lot of money. I'm sure that presenting as an Omega would give him some complicated feelings. And I feel like we got to see a slightly softer side of Draco in the story because of that. And I was also so tickled. (laughs) I know that that you had a challenging time writing Harry, but the way that he reacts to Draco and the way that he treats him in this story was just so endearing because he was so patient and just (laughs) so kind, you know, in a situation that was abhorrently embarrassing for Draco, I'm sure, you know. Yeah. But instead of using that as an opportunity to, like, needle him or embarrass him, he didn't do that, you know? Which was just so great.
1: I'm glad that came across the right way. I was trying at the time, I was kind of a, a little bit worried I was getting a little bit out of character for Harry, making him a little bit too considerate, because, you know, sassy Harry, <laughs> you know, clapping back at people, that's it's a, it's a staple of Harry Potter. It's, it's great when he does it, you know, and I didn't have him do that at all <laughs> in, in the story, so I'm glad that I was able to keep him considerate of Draco given the circumstances, you know, as they were, because it, at this point in the storyline, the Wizarding War is over with, and everybody outside of this, you know, little microcosm they've got going on in the Hogwarts hospital wing, you know, everybody else is trying to move on with their lives, you know, they're trying to rebuild, they're trying to, you know, fix the castle because there was all this damage sustained. And it felt important to me that at that point, you know, Harry's Thought process, you know, he's he's gone through all these years, you know, thinking, okay, I've got to defeat Baltimore, I've got to defeat Baltimore. Well, he's defeated Baltimore, so now what? And seeing him like be like, well, you know, tell you what, if the Slytherins are are decent towards me, I'm going to be decent towards them because we've all gone through this horrific experience, and it's over now, so we can finally move on.
0: Yeah, it's like he recognized it as an opportunity to bury the hatchet. Yeah. Whereas, you know, he could have gone a different direction, but he chose to be decent (laughs) and kind, which was just so endearing. I'm curious to know your general thoughts on the ABO trope. I've talked about it on the show a little bit here and there, but it remains a sort of a controversial type trope, you know, for for good reason. But I think it also has a lot of potential and a lot of good opportunity in it as well and I I love when I see it used in a thought-provoking way which I think that you were able to accomplish that here in this story it was beautiful so I was just hoping that you could maybe share your your thoughts on the ABO trope in general why you chose that particular trope um what are your thoughts about you know other stories that use the trope and etc
1: You know there are so many different ways that you can write a story using the ABO tropes and some of them, some well, I mean, it, it, it's it's considered controversial for a good reason. I mean, there's the the consent issues alone are just so rampant. And I tried to address that without getting preachy in a late presentation. I'm hoping that that came across the right way. I've read some fan fictions that wind up just sort of well. I mean, they just sort of veer off into rape porn, and that's you know, not kink shaming. It's like if that's your thing, cool. It's just I mean, definitely there's potential for that sort of a, a problem, you know, problematic and dubious consent, non-consent issues in the little storyline that I've created here. But I think it does provide much better opportunities for people to address issues of gender identity, to address issues of consent, to address issues of, you know, where does one's personal responsibility start and stop when you've got these primal Drives that are affecting your physiology as well as your, your impulse control. <laughs> and how we use, like, for instance, um, there's a, a trope in the ABO uh, where sometimes an alpha can use, like, an alpha voice, and doing air quotes, not that you can see them, um, <laughs> but, but they can use an alpha voice and it somehow, like, compels an omega to do whatever they're told um, when addressed in that voice. And I've included it in the story and it's in, it'll actually um, come up more in the sequel. When would it be appropriate to use that sort of, you know, and especially when is it not appropriate to use that sort of a power over someone else's agency?
0: Right. With great power comes great responsibility. Exactly. You
1: know, it's not something you want to do just, you know, willy nilly ordering people
0: about. You know, that's obviously that would be rude. But, you (laughs) know, but
1: especially in the, you know, idea of an Omegaverse, it, it can be incredibly problematic.
0: No, it can be. And I thought that you handled it very gracefully in this story. I'm excited to see what you end up doing with the sequel, because I have no doubt that you'll handle it gracefully there as well, especially with the alpha voice thing. I, I'm sure that people who aren't familiar with AVO tropes are like thinking, what the hell is an alpha voice? <laughs> but, but for those of us who are, you know, very familiar with this trope, we're very familiar with the uh, the alpha voice thing. and uh, And it does. It makes an appearance in a lot of different stories. And it's always interesting to me. I am so glad that you also brought up the, um, the gender identity issue, because when I talk about ABO with people who are perhaps not as familiar mm-hmm. with that trope, I do end up bringing that point up quite a bit, that for me personally, ABO has been a wonderful, cathartic way for me to address some of those feelings that come along with gender identity. You know, in a safe way that doesn't feel, what's the word I'm looking for? Contrived. Yeah, contrived or aggressive, especially if it's a character that I feel already attached to in some way. If I am able to see them go through some sort of, (laughs) you know, challenge or something in an ABO type trope, for some reason, that's just very cathartic for me, you know. Yeah. So I've always wondered if other people feel the same way that I do about that trope and in that same way. So
1: I think that you're very likely not alone. There's a really good fan fiction called Coming to Terms by Unforth and did an incredible job where it's in the supernatural fandom and there's one character who is born an alpha but doesn't feel like an alpha, isn't attracted to omegas, and really is attracted to other alphas, but in Unforth's universe, well, at least for that particular character, because that character grew up very, very sheltered, doesn't know that that can be a thing and feels very, very guilty about the fact that he's attracted to other alphas. And not only that, but he doesn't feel like an alpha. He feels like an omega, but he doesn't understand because he's had such a sheltered upbringing. He doesn't understand even that that can be a thing. You know that that exists, you know that's a, that's a possibility. He's going through all of this angst and, and and self-doubt and self-flagellation, even because he can't live up to this expectation that his family has for him to be the alpha male. It's a really fascinating exploration of both like gay issues and also trans issues. The, the way that Unforth wrote it was' it's incredibly well done in my
0: opinion. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating. See, that's why I love ABO so much, because it prompts these types of discussions (laughs) that I think are absolutely fascinating, you know, absolutely fascinating, endlessly compelling. That's why I love the trope so much, because it prompts these types of thoughts and discussions, especially when it comes to gender. You know, there are so many things to say (laughs) about it, for sure. You know, speaking of interesting conversations, you know, involving these different things, you know, in our back and forth email discussions, which I enjoyed immensely, You mentioned how some fics are theme and message driven, right? Which we've been discussing here a little bit. But there are others who are really just more, you described them as harlequin bodice rippers, right? Which brings forth those images of, uh, you know, romance novels where it's really just more about the sex than it is (laughs) about any sort of message, right? And I think we've both agreed in our back and forth that both types of writing are absolutely valid. You know, my thought on that is that with fan fiction being so much of a a female-driven activity, I think that there have been a lot of instances in the past where fan fiction has been demonized and misunderstood, especially when it comes to stories that read like that because people want to look at it and they're just like, "Oh my god, this is trash. This is yeah. just 13-year-olds writing garbage." Right? Yeah. (laughs) How disparaging, right? I think that there are a lot of people in fandom in the past 10 years or so that have pushed back against that stereotype a little bit and just said, you know, people say those things sometimes because they're afraid of female sexuality and they're afraid of that expression of female sexuality. And that's what some of these works are, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So (laughs) even though we do talk about a lot of theme and message-driven works on the show, I think it's also equally valid to point out that there are some stories out there that are just healthy expressions of kinks, sexuality. Maybe they're just more there for entertainment value. And that's still okay. That's still valid. And there's still nothing wrong with that.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean... It's fine if you want to sit down and come up with a major theme of exploring consent or exploring gender identity or exploring, you know, the concepts of Stockholm syndrome or you know, slavery or all of these, you know, very deep concepts and trying to, to write a story that explores the types of issues that different marginalized people experience. That's great, but it's also great to write something that's just. These two characters go and have a great time, because both can be enjoyable to read, both are enjoyable to watch. You know, talking earlier in my intro about my cooking, and I enjoy cooking. I I like cooking a lot. I like cooking French cuisine in particular, and I've worked very hard to become, I will say proficient, but I'm not even sure I quite hit proficient, but I'm decent. But that being said, sometimes I just want to eat a ham sandwich and some chips. I don't, I don't, it doesn't have to be like this grand, elaborate production. Sometimes you just want something short and sweet. Sometimes you just want something that's, you don't have to think so hard about. Sometimes you want something that's, you know, just, you read it and you're like, "Ah, that was fun. Right, exactly. It doesn't always have to be a grand production. And I think that to disparage writers who write stories that are intended to be just fun and don't have hidden messages in them. To call that trash or, or worthless, is just, it's, it's just so wrong.
0: I agree with you 100% that it's valid to have a writer who wants to just explore that side of sexuality or, yeah.
1: A light presentation, I didn't write that, you know, intending to, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to put in a little bit about consent in there because I, I feel like that's important. But I wasn't writing that to have like some like deep concepts and and themes and and trying to make a general statement about anything. I just wanted to write something that was low pressure and smut, frankly. (laughs) And I I got a little bit into their backstories and the the history between Harry and and Draco, but I didn't want to get that deep into it. You know, I wanted to keep it more lighthearted and fun to read.
0: Yes, and it was. It was, in fact, you know, I had a great time reading your author's notes. (laughs) in that story, because there are the parts that are leading up to the smut stuff. Uh And then when you get there, I think you said something in your author's notes to the equivalent of porny times ahead, like porn is here, you know, (laughs) jump ship if you don't want to read this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But just being so bold about that and being like, yep, the next part is porn, you (laughs) know, and, and that's okay, you know, and I loved that. I absolutely loved it. Because, you know, in my mind, There is nothing wrong with that kind of writing, and there's nothing wrong with stories like that. I read stories like that all the time, (laughs) and they're immensely satisfying and so much fun. Even though fan fiction can be serious and can have messages and things like that, there are lots of different types of fan fiction, and they are all valid, and they are all beautiful, and all serve different purposes, and we can celebrate all of them.
1: And just as an aside, yes, I'm older, and I'm writing in a, a YA fandom. That being said, for the 13-year-olds that are out there plowing through their fix and writing their stuff and everything, awesome. Do it. Write. And write more. And then write some more after that, because whatever feedback you're getting, you know, regardless if it's positive or negative, the more that you write, you're only going to get better. So if you aren't satisfied with the feedback you're getting, it's okay, because you're only going to get better as you write more and more and more and more.
0: Yes, keep going and keep exploring and keep practicing because that's really what it is, right? It's that practice. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Speaking of practice, do you have a favorite line or a scene from a late presentation?
1: You know, I was thinking about that. There's a very short little tidbit before Draco at this point, he's in heat, but he's not completely discombobulated by it. You know, when I was writing him in being in heat, I was trying to portray it sort of as if he were drunk, and so his thought process is disordered. So he's a little bit not quite with it. And they're eating; they've got snacks. So yeah, I said his skin was prickling, and he felt like he might explode. It would ruin Tappas' hour. It cracked me up for <laughs> some reason. Like when I wrote it, it just cracked me up because they, they had this like <laughs> tapas and charcuterie board thing going, and I was just like just tickled me when I was writing it. So that little bit. There's a bit where he's. It's later in the story and he's in the shower and he, he said you know, he wasn't crying. You know, he, he might have been leaking from the eyes a little bit, but he definitely was not <laughs> crying. <laughs> no, not at all. Dorco <laughs> was not crying. <laughs> no. So it's, uh, he's in the shower and he's upset. He thinks. This whole Omega business was just so. Not degrading, that wasn't the right word, but being a slave to one's hormones on a quarterly basis, leaking fluids and mindlessly driven by biological impulse, not giving a Niffler's trinket if he was being intimate with someone that had been his nominal or sworn enemy, or so secret crush, it was positively uncouth. Draco, oh. you're such a snob. <laughs> I love you so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I relate to him so much there because, you know, just the idea that the body does things that you have no control over and that make you mad. Oh, I can relate to that on such a deep level with Draco. <laughs> and when I read that, I was like, yes, oh, I understand definitely. what you feel, my man. Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm so glad that you also brought up the um, the cheese platter scene. Mm -hmm. because the part where he corrects Harry on that is one of my favorites. When he's like, it's a charcuterie board. (laughs) And I was like, you snob, that's so funny. (laughs) Cheese platter, come on now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny because... um, I'm not a, a well-polished individual myself and it's always been she's plattered to me. Sure. And then my brother started working for this fancy restaurant a few years ago mm-hmm. and they serve a charcuterie board there and that was the first time like 2 years ago is when I first learned that word, charcuterie oh, wow. board. So yeah, I know. So like, <laughs> So when you brought it up in the in the scene, I just laughed out loud because I was like, "Yep, I I get you, Harry. Like I didn't know what that was either." <laughs>
1: And then Harry arguing with him, he's like, it's not pancetta anyways.
0: <laughs> I know. That's really just the- so
1: funny. It- well, it begs the question, what kind of meat was it? You know,
0: because Draco <laughs> yeah. thought it was pancetta and Draco was supposedly the expert on these things. <laughs> so- I know. But that's just the delightful part, I think, of their particular interactions, right? Is that Harry doesn't really know this stuff. But Draco's so high-born that he's just so snobby about everything, and it's just so funny. <laughs> well, he's very confidently incorrect. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But at least he's confidently incorrect. Yeah, so. it's it's kind <laughs> of the,
1: the... There's a point in which um, Draco and Harry are talking, and it, it's funny, too, because, like, in the previous chapter, Harry had said something about he didn't want to sing gauche, but asking Draco, you know, where are you on the horniness scale of your heat right now? Because <laughs> right. Not, you know, but he uses that word gauche. And then later in the next chapter, he's like, I don't really know. Cause Draco is talking to him and explaining like French food words. And uh, Harry's like, I don't really know French except for, you know, the stuff that you pick up like deja vu or Agua. Well, he already said gauche and gauche is French. <laughs> <laughs> he actually knows more than he thinks he does.
0: He does. He knows more than he thinks he does. He's just, you know, not as confident as Draco, I think, would be. Cause he's like, did I even use that word right? But right. but yeah. Oh, and then that part where Draco is asking for water, but he doesn't want any kind of water. Like he wants sparkling water. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, that's so bougie. So right. bougie <laughs> of you, Draco. <laughs> I loved it. So he was so absolutely delightfully in character here the whole entire time. I just thought you did a wonderful job here. I'm curious about your writing process here for this project. I was also wondering if your writing process for the first part of the series, because you've decided to extend this into a series, so we have a late presentation, and then we have the follow-up sequel, which is Harry Potter and the Not-So-Simple Eighth Year. So I'm kind of wondering what your writing process looked like for a late presentation, and has that process changed as you've expanded out to the sequel?
1: It definitely has changed. When I wrote a late presentation, because I initially wrote it just intending to sit down and write. I think I wrote it over the course of two or three days. My original draft was only five chapters long, and then when I went back to start posting, well, to start editing it, I should say, and then start posting, I posted the first chapter, and I was going back and trying to edit the rest of it. Wound up adding quite a bit more, fleshed out some scenes more fully that had been left a little bit more vague. Um, It wound up growing to seven chapters, and then Finally, wound up in its eight chapter final outcome. But I very, very much just got it written. It was in Google Docs as quickly as I could possibly just churn it out. I'm not going to think about it too much. I'm just going to churn it out and get it done. It's not a particularly long story. It's something like, what, 10, a little over 10,000 words. But normally, I, I very much am i you know, I, I write an outline. I get like my little bullet points of this. Got to, you know, include this, this, and this. And, you know, maybe have a few scenes that are very, very like detailed in my mind for exactly how I want everything to be staged. I may mean, have like certain lines that I know I need to get in there, certain concepts that I know I have to insert at different areas, and then I'll write everything out after I've done all that pre-planning first. The problem that I ran into when I started the sequel was that I basically was trying to just sort of pants it. You know, I had a very, very loose outline for it, but it did not have the kind of detail that I normally try to do when I'm writing a story. And I got those first three chapters written and posted, and I had a couple of more chapters written that I was not happy with, and I realized very quickly that trying to post a work in progress is just not for me. The two stories that I've tried to do that with, well, the one story that I tried to do that with was in the Game of Thrones fandom, I wound up completely losing steam on, even though I had it completely outlined out for exactly where it was going. So it's much better, I think, for me to go ahead and get it completely written before I try to start posting it, because I don't want to leave people hanging. You know, if something happens, if I go into writer's block, if I'm, you know, just completely lose steam on the the story, I mean, you read some works in progress or read fan fictions that are unfinished, and you see where they're going with the story, and then at some point, it's like, they just run out of steam, you know, and I've done it myself, you know, I know exactly what that's like, and you're just like, oh, geez, where am I going with this, you know? I think that's why you see so many times, like, there'll be one chapter posted, be like, the first chapter, but it's not a one-shot. I think what winds up happening is that you come up with a premise for a plot, but you don't have the plot. It's crucial for me to actually have a plot planned out before I start trying to write anything, because otherwise I'm, you know, I will just sort of wander aimlessly around and then be like, ah, I'm tired of this one. <laughs> and go on to the next.
0: So it sounds like you are planning much more carefully with Harry Potter and the not so simple eighth year. Right? I am now.
1: <laughs> I, have, I have learned the error of my ways. It's coming along. I'm intending to hopefully have it finished and start. I'll have to go back and edit the first three chapters to make sure everything stays cohesive. but. I should have it completely finished and ready to post in another couple of months from our recording date. So,
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And people, I think, will be so pleased to see that because you had a lot of good feedback, I think, for a late presentation. And people seem to want to see the story continue, which, of course, they do. It, it's wonderful. Was there anything that you wanted to say about the sequel? I'm sure you don't want to give away any spoilers or anything, but was there anything you wanted to say about that sequel?
1: The sequel is a little bit different. What I've got written so far, it's it's different than a late presentation. It's it's got a bit more of a um, more serious tone to it. I mean, I tried to keep you know the elements of humor and, and sillier aspects of life at Hogwarts and the ABO situations <laughs> as they are, but it's going much more into depth though on issues like consent, on issues like bullying, on issues of the pureblood culture at the way that it's depicted in Harry Potter. It's going into things like back histories of all of the characters and things that they experienced during the wizarding war that they've just survived.
0: So we get to see more of their individual characters and some character development, things like that.
1: I'm trying. I don't know exactly how well all of it has come across, but but I am trying.
0: (laughs) That's the goal here, right?
1: (laughs) And I'm trying to keep it to where it more or less follows the school year at Hogwarts.
0: Yeah, yeah, that final year, right, when everything's over. But it's not really over now, is it? (laughs) It's it's, it's, it's Harry
1: Potter. It's never over. It will continue forever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and there's just so much there. I know you and I were talking before the show. And I think we also talked about it, I think, during this recording is with all of the trauma and the different things that happened during the war and prior to the war and all of that. Sure. It's just so much, right? right? So much to address. So yeah, if you're doing, you know, anything post-war, I think has a lot of potential for pulling in different elements and <laughs> addressing some of the, um, the issues and things like that. So I think that'll be lovely to see. And we're very excited for that. So one thing that I did want to address also before we end today, I have two more questions for you. Okay. This next one, we have been going back and forth for a little bit now on email and having some wonderful conversations back and forth. And you said something in one of your emails that I thought was very important to address. I think it's very interesting. You said something about fan fiction providing vocabulary for people, especially teens who grew up in the 90s, who didn't necessarily have the vocabulary for what they were experiencing back then. And um, I got the sense that you were more referring to LGBTQ experiences. And the reason why I wanted to discuss this just a little bit here is because, uh, first of all, we've never discussed this on the show, and I think it's important. The second reason I want to discuss it is because, you know, I've gotten to a point in my own life where I I feel comfortable talking about this now. Mm -hmm. I've never said this on the show before, but um, at 38 years old, (laughs) I am finally coming to terms with my own past experiences when I was younger and finally coming to terms with the idea that I can accept those parts of myself that I didn't feel like I could talk about before and I didn't feel like I could acknowledge. So I've recently started coming out as bisexual. I have recently started also talking about my own gender identity issues and things like that that were very much a part of my growing up. I thought it was so interesting that you brought that up because that was very much my experience. I did grow up in the 90s and in the 90s we had no language for gender identity issues, right? I just knew that I didn't feel completely female. And that's always been part of me. And I had no language to describe that or talk about it or explore it back then. And I loved this idea, this concept that fan fiction in some ways gave us who were growing up back then that opportunity and the language to explore those sides of us that we didn't have before. And I was hoping that maybe we could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, if you study fan fiction from a more scholarly point of view, you know, you can go back to, like, the original, like, original Star Trek fanfics that were written, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. And you see this exploration of gay culture, but because people were so very closeted in those days and the the concept of being able to be out and be proud and it not being illegal, it's been a gradual progression of LGBTQIA+ issues being more and more acceptable to society at large, at least in the United States. Um, I know some, uh, some countries it's not as great, and even here, we need to do better. But it was such a very, like, hushed up thing. People reading fan fiction, people writing fan fiction, in those days, they were, can we see some gay representation in our television? Can we see this in our movies? Like, can you quit hiding us off in the shadows? Can you quit forcing us off screen? can we see that and so they wrote it because it wasn't being represented it wasn't being depicted in the media and sharing through zines or through mailing lists and through different conventions and things like that was literally the only way that they could see the kind of stories that represented their life experiences and by the time that I was growing up you know, in the 80s and the 90s you know it's still like there were people in my hometown which was very very small who were Gay and lesbian, and who were out. But the people in my hometown tended to, like, you know, kind of like look at me, like, eh, well, you know, that they, kind of like behind the hand, like, but you know they're gay, right?
0: Right, right. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> you know, it's, there still wasn't that acceptance. People watching Deep Space Nine, you see Garrick, you see Dr. Julian Bashir, you see their interactions, and it's like, well, obviously, but there's something going on there, you know. <laughs> yes, but they, but they still wouldn't actually come out with it and be like, "Okay, they've got a relationship going on." And that was in ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, so it still wasn't there. I don't think that young readers and writers today realize how good they have it that they grew up with the internet being there, where you've got things like fanfiction dot net, or you have AO three, where you have the other different websites that host fan fiction, where you have Tumblr, even, you know, to where you can do your Tumblr posts about the fan fiction, about the ships, but also about your own experiences, where you actually have other people you can easily contact or easily interact with who have experiences similar to yours. Because in the 90s, if you were gay, you generally were quiet about it. If you didn't feel particularly female or particularly male, or you felt some amalgamation of both, or if you felt that it sort of changed depending on your mood or depending on the day or depending on, you know, just however you felt at that particular moment, the concept of gender fluidity or non-binary, there was no vocabulary for it. And if there was vocabulary for it, I certainly wasn't exposed to it because no one was talking about it.
0: Yes, nor was I, nor was I. And I had that thought, I think that same thought, you know, after I saw you bring this up in your email and after I thought about it for a while. And I am so grateful that people like in my sister's generation, for instance, she's a Gen Z, you know, and she grew up in high school with terms for people that have that life experience. So she is all set with those terms and she understands. And it's something that, like you said, we are more able to talk about out in society. It's something that Everyone is is starting to be conscious and aware of, which I am so grateful for. And I'm not saying that it's perfect. No, absolutely. We need to do better. But it's better when you compare it to our own experiences in the 80s and 90s, where literally there was no language for it. You know, when I experienced that, there was no way to talk about it. No, There wasn't a way to talk about it internally with just me because there was no language for it. And I just thought that I was the only one in the whole damn world. That was experiencing that. And so I never talked about it. Dozens of us, dozens, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Now these kids are growing up with these terms and the language that they need to express that and to explore it. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I think that you're right. Like for me, reading fan fiction, not only was it fun <laughs> and entertaining and, and all these different things, but it was. I don't want to use the word cathartic because it was deeper than that.
1: Things were validating.
0: Yes. There you go. Thank you. It was validating in a, in a way that I really needed, right? Because yeah. I needed to know that I wasn't the only one. And I needed to know that there were happy endings for people who felt that way. And and I needed to know that it, it was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so grateful that fan fiction could give us that back then before we had the language. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for going there with me today. I really appreciate that. I thought that was important to bring that up just a little bit and have a a small discussion about that. So um, now, last question of the day here. Do you have any other fan fiction authors that you follow that you'd like to mention real quick before we close out?
1: Well, in the Harry Potter universe, anyone who has not read or at least looked at the Pacify series by Chicken Pets needs to go and take a look at it. It might not be everybody's cup of tea. It's a BDSM-themed story, and it features Harry and Snape. So, you know, depending on how you like your fanfic, it might not be for you, but it's an incredible story. I have a hard time following particular authors, because um, for me, the, the stories that I read, I take it much more on like a fic-by-fic basis, but I did want to give a shout-out to a story called Away Childish Things by an author called Lettered. It's a Harry and Draco story. It's phenomenally done as well. You've actually interviewed a couple of authors that I really enjoy from the Supernatural fandom, Casually Neurotic and Ginger Swag. And then I guess also Unforth for their work.
0: Oh, perfect. Those all sound so wonderful. Some of those I've read and some of them I haven't. But yes, yes, we're always so excited to be able to leave a little bit of time at the end to shout out different writers and the incredible work that they do what is this show anyway, if not a celebration of, of everyone and all the writers and all of the work that you guys do because it's important and it matters. Thank you so much for those and for coming on today. Southern Wildling, do you have any last words for it?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I have thoroughly enjoyed doing this with you and exploring the different aspects of stuff that we have talked about. Thank you so much for having me on your show. This has been a blast.
0: Absolutely. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. You know, I want to remind everybody that I'm always here. My door is always open. I love hearing from all of you. It's my favorite thing in the whole entire world. Thank you to everyone that reaches out and lets me know how I'm doing or lets me know what they'd like to see on the show. That's always welcome and always wonderful. So thank you so much. And thank you, Southern Wildling, for being here today. We appreciate you so much. Check out their stories on AO3, folks. Give them some love. You can find the Maverick online at FanFakeMaverickPodcast.com. On Tumblr at Fanfic Maverick Podcast, on Instagram at Fanfic Maverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.